The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Monstrous Regiment, featuring a roundtable of Dominion women seeking to honor Jesus Christ in applying God's Word fearlessly and faithfully in all callings and seasons of life, both in and out of the home, reversing the curse and smashing pagan strongholds. In our last episode, Susanna and I talked about the legitimacy of fiction as a pursuit for Christians, and we specifically talked about a couple of myths surrounding fiction and ended on the concept that people who are not Christians can tell gospel stories. So we want to pick up that theme today. I'm Kate Robinson. This is Susanna Roundtree, and we are the Monstrous Regiment. Yeah, so um, with our last episode, um, I, I did end by saying that I think that um, I do believe that non-Christians can tell God-centered stories. Um, and so, you know, we, we all know one great example would be the a lot of the films that Hollywood puts out. We all know that Hollywood is fairly corrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, celebrities tend to, you know, they lecture us about gun control while enjoying the services of armed bodyguards. Um they have a lot to say on environmentalist regulation while they're living in these gigantic mansions and driving enormous cars. They like to speak out against sexual harassment, even when they might have been accused of something similar or they might have been um, bullying abuse victims into silences. We saw come out with some of the headlines on the Harvey Weinstein case. Right. So, you know, <laughs> We, we don't we don't tend to give Hollywood a lot of moral credence um, and then you know a lot of a lot of what they believe do come, does come out in the films that they choose to reward each year at the Oscars um, just recently we had uh, Bohemian Rhapsody directed by Brian Singer who has been accused um, of preying on young men um, there was the year before there was the shape of water um which you know specifically set up its villain as a christian um one movie that won at the oscars um not too long ago was birdman which was apparently created as an antidote to superhero movies and you know like hollywood makes a ton of money out of bright clean happy superhero movies right now but when it comes to the oscars it seems like they'll only reward a movie about superheroes if it's about how stupid superheroes are um so with so much corruption and snobbery coming out in Hollywood, it's always a bit of a surprise when these people produce well-made stories that feature solid gospel themes, especially when you listen to some of the hype that some people um, bring out about the movies. Um, for instance, if you believed the hype, Wonder Woman was going to be the feminist cultural event that brought liberation to women all over the world. It was it was, in fact, a really moving look at the total depravity of man. It defines love as a commitment to show grace to the undeserving. It was a really good movie. It was. Um, it was beautiful. There was, um, there was Black Panther uh, last year. That was supposed to be Marvel's most politically overt film. Um, there was one solitary Australian critic who became the first person in the world to give it a negative review. Um, everybody was like so ashamed. 
like it was some kind of national sin against political correctness. Um, you know, I went to see it anyway because I completely fell in love with the aesthetic. Plus, I I really do like to give stories a chance to speak for themselves. Right. Um, it's it spoke up for repentance of past sins. It rejected revolutionary activism. Its solution for future peace revolved around privately funded um, community service. And so even though I did think that it did have some plot plot pacing issues, it was a really moving film that um, promoted truth, gospel truth. Right, right. And service as leadership and all that sort of thing. Exactly. Um, Mad Max Fury Road. I avoided that movie for years, but then I found out when I watched it that it was actually about the need for men and women to sacrifice themselves for each other rather than to dominate and oppress each other. See, I didn't know that. Um, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> you're going to love it. It is so good. <laughs> Every time you say that, you and, and Sarah Robinson both say that, and I keep meaning to watch it, and I keep forgetting. You should definitely watch it. Um, okay. And then another example from just from this year would be Captain Marvel. Um, everybody was screaming loudly about that movie. It was a fine movie. It talked about some things that happened to women that I've never seen stories on this scale I'll talk about before. Uh, it was about the Im- importance of emotion and empathy. I liked it. I'm glad they made it. And it was, it was another fine movie. Right. And what, and interestingly, I, a lot of the sort of hand wringing about um, movies like that on the, on our side of the table, you know, on their side, it's like, this is going to be like you said, Wonder Woman was hailed as the great, you know, feminist, whatever. And, yeah. um, and I mean, it is, it, in some ways feminist in the good sense, but, um, but on our side, there's, we respond to those propaganda messages with um, a lot of pearl clutching and hand wringing about how they're going to ruin everything. And Captain Marvel's going to come in and save the day and be the only one. And we're teaching women that they're better than men, but, but the movies themselves don't do that. They don't, they no. honor the men and the women who are good and and demonstrate harmony between them and there's no sort of reproach for to Captain America for being a dude. You know what I mean? It's just not yeah. I, I think our hand wringing actually um makes the problem worse. <laughs> yeah. I, I think so for sure. Um but what these stories actually do is they rise far above any sort of political agenda mm-hmm. to actually just talk about the truth. And this is despite the corruption that is so rampant in Hollywood. So, so, so why is that? Why can we trust Hollywood to make good movies? Um, I think the answer is simple. I think the answer is money. Um, all the films I just mentioned have received huge box office success. Uh, Max, Mad Max Fury Road is the least successful. That was the 21st highest earning film of 2015 whereas if you compare those with the best picture winners I mentioned previously um those the best picture winners are the ones that might stand more in line with Hollywood's ethics and what they would like personally to see in the stories they tell um when you compare those um two sets of films something becomes really obvious here um the first thing is the best pictures make comparatively little money at the box office and the second thing is that they tend to fall into obscurity within a few years. Um, for example, The Shape of Water, only the 64th highest grossing film of 2017. Um, Birdman, the 78th highest grossing film of its year. 
Um, sometimes they will nominate a hit like Dunkirk, which was number 14 in 2017, or La La Land, which was um, number 19 in 2016. The fact is that we haven't had a, a, a winner that's, that does better than the 20th best, um, the 20th highest grossing film. We haven't had a winner that does better than that since King's Speech won in 2010 at number 18. So that's nine years since we had a best picture that was really a box office hit. So they're not, um, so you're saying, I think you're about to say this, but you're saying basically that Hollywood, um, you know, the people involved in filmmaking have a certain set of values and ethics, which are the generally the ones that we as Christians would denounce. Um, but what the average moviegoer outside of Hollywood wants to see reflects an entirely different set of values. And as a result, Hollywood ends up telling stories that they themselves either don't agree with or don't understand. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure that you could put it that quite that, um, you, you could say it in quite, you could put it in. That might be quite, reductive. Right. It's, that's, yeah, I think that might be a little bit reductive. I think there are definitely people in Hollywood who, you know, absolutely believe in the movies that they're making, but there you, you still see, you know, People, people believed in Captain Marvel. People believed in Wonder Woman. Sure, people believed sure. in Black Panther. The people that were making those movies, um, but they, they made they made the films in such a way um, that that really does quite clearly set them apart from um, the kind of films that win Oscars. Right. Um, in twenty eighteen. Um, the best picture winner was Slumdog Millionaire. Uh, that was a hit. People actually That's knew it to see it and enjoyed it. Yeah, 2008. Um, Ten years later, however, I did a little bit of rigorous scientific research in the living rooms of a few close friends, and I can confirm that people below the age of 30 have never heard of this movie, while people above that age don't remember it. Um, if you do ask anyone to name the most culturally influential film of the last 10 years, they don't have to think very long. Everybody replies that it's Christopher Nolan's movie, The Dark Knight. So that was released in 20, 2008, the same year as Slumdog Millionaire. It was the highest grossing film of the year, just a whisker ahead of Iron Man, which was influential in its own way as, you know, the precursor of the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, but The Dark Knight really does remain an acknowledged classic, not just as the high watermark for the entire superhero genre, but for blockbuster films in general. I mean, um, in the years since it came out, this movie has been cited by multiple filmmakers as an inspiration for films like Skyfall and the three most pla recent Planet of the Ape films. Um, Marvel's, Marvel Studios executive Kevin Feige cited it as proof that superhero movies were a viable investment. So... Um, so this movie has had a really enormous cultural impact just in the last decade, but it didn't win the Best Picture Oscar. Um, it wasn't even nominated. Um, so, so cultural influence is not the same as winning an Oscar, obviously. Right, um, right. And as a rule, and, and this rule just seems to get more rigid with each passing year, blockbusters don't win Oscars even if they're nominated. Right, which I so guess is what I'm trying to say. And, and in general, as a general rule, the Hollywood culture wants to reward 
a different sort of story than the culture that they're that buys the movie tickets wants absolutely see yeah yeah um i I wouldn't say that box office intake is a guarantee of quality sure Um, there are plenty of bad formulaic franchise movies that top the charts each year um the live action beauty and the beast remake for example yeah (laughs) some films can be relied on to make big money even when they're awful but the point is this the films which proved to be most influential, not just to moviegoers, but also even to the filmmaking industry itself, are far more often the big-budget crowd-pleasers than they are the artsy, highbrow dramas. And um, those are the films that we, we remember 10, 20, 30 years on, not the Academy Award winners. And I believe... So So that's the money side of the equation. And I think, I think what Hollywood has figured out is that a story will only satisfy people if it is a satisfying story if it adheres to an ethical standard which everyone in their heart of hearts knows right. to be true. And we talked about this in our previous episode. People have consciences. They want to see justice right. done. And, you know, you can make money with a film that caters to a broadly held era. Um, our sense of storytelling, like everything else, is fallen. Um, but there are a few errors that I, I think held broadly enough to warrant inclusion in the kind of big-budget blockbuster, which absolutely must make millions or destroy careers. For instance, we've yet to see a huge blockbuster that um, defends or praises abortion. Right. And in fact, there's, there's a lot of um, really great stories that unintentionally um, speak against it, that, that really demonstrate the truth about the preborn human being a lot of times without even meaning to. Can and you I give think, us a good example? Well, like um, that last year, there was the HBO miniseries um, Big Little Lies, which is a really well done show. Okay. And uh, I don't want to give anything away for anyone who wants to watch it. It's got some, you know, adult themes and stuff. But there, there was one uh, rape conceived child in it, and two other children that were, you, you know, it's hinted at strongly that they're products of hostile conception. And it's exploring themes of like whether um, that violence and conception is hereditary and whether these children, you know, are able to, to be free from that and be their own person and don't, and not have violent tendencies of their own. And I think that people want to see, um, people don't want to see that story end in killing the child because it was the product of rape. They, They were, glad to see the redemption and the, um, Mm. you know, I I don't know that it was even, I don't think it was an abortion message at all, but you see that all the time. And even just sitcoms where people get pregnant unexpectedly, it's very rare um, Mm -hmm. that, that abortion is the go-to, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then there's, there's, you know, there were at least two, I hate to talk about Doctor Who again, but there were at least two (laughs) episodes of that that were, very, whether intentionally or otherwise, anti-abortion. And if you look at um, Infinity War, Marvel Infinity War, the, yeah. that's basically an analogy for abortion. The bad guy is abortion, you know. So yeah, he he wants to um he wants to get rid of the surplus population because that will make life so much better for everyone else. It's exactly right. the same kind of reasoning that does undergird abortion. 
Right, exactly. And so, so the stories that get told are constantly undermining that reasoning, even as the reasoning itself is preached in other various platforms. Yeah. And it's a big challenge, isn't it? Trying to, trying to bridge the disconnect between a worldview that values life mm. and all the, all the justifications and all the rationalizations that people have in place to defend uh, things like abortion. Right. But it's, I mean, as you said, um, we all have the law of God written on our heart and there's things that we all know to be true and good and right. Even if various misunderstandings in our worldviews cause us to suppress that. Yeah. Um, Romans one tells us that every person on earth deep down knows the truth. Um, Hollywood makes, Hollywood makes good films the same way that, the atheists use logic, that is to say, presuppositionally. Right. You know, logic assumes the existence of a rationally created universe. And in the same way, Hollywood makes films which assume the existence of Christian ethics. Yes. And again and again, the stories that we get coming from Hollywood, Hollywood's big budget franchises underlines the fact that only self-sacrificial service can save the world, which is basically retelling yeah. the gospel. And this is something that, that uh, we referenced briefly in the in the last episode is that a lot of times the overt sort of agenda in the stories, it comes across even to atheistic or, or, you know, non-religious viewers as heavy handed or superfluous to the story. But what the story actually communicates is, as you said, subversive to the agenda itself, you know, and, and I think you made a reference um, earlier to a movie that, that the villain was supposedly Christian. And I think there's lots of um, movies and shows like that, that are meant as an attack on Christianity and what they, and and again, we sort of get upset about that and, and want to avoid them. But if we pause a minute and think about what's actually being communicated, what they depict is very often the exact sort of false religion that we also decry that we speak against, you know, power religion and prejudice and abuse. Exactly. Which is why it is risky to say that a movie is a bad movie just because the villain is a Christian. Because I'll be, oh. <laughs> exactly. Because there's plenty of actually professing Christian villains like that, and it's a great opportunity for us to to identify with with the audience and say, yeah, the values you're promoting are actually our values: justice and mercy and righteousness and selfless sacrifice. And the values that you're that you're denouncing are values that we also denounce. And we're glad to see you highlight that. Yeah. So the great Christian writers, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien had an explanation for this phenomenon where stories retell the gospel. They called it mythopia. It's the, it's the, the fact that every story in the world is undergirded by the gospel and cannot help but retell it in some way. And it was a significant factor in C.S. Lewis's conversion to Christianity that Tolkien could point him past the pagan myths, which Lewis loved so much, to the truth and the beauty of what Tolkien called the true myth, which stood behind it. Uh, For example, in Norse mythology, Odin pierces himself with a spear and hangs on a tree for nine days and nine nights as a sacrifice to himself. And by this act of sacrifice, he's able to learn the magic of runes. Um, To a Christian, this myth's foundation is obviously um, the death of Christ on the cross. And, you know, whether whether the uh, myth came from a pre-Christ time or a post-Christ time, 
you know, time time is strange in the Christian worldview anyway. I mean, to to guard all times are now, right? And so if he's made he's made this world on right. a certain pattern, and so people can't help but remember, whether forwards or backwards, <laughs> um, the truth about the world. Right. So so by this. Yeah, didn't C.S. Lewis say something like that when he was he was answering objections to the you know the reality of Christianity based on the fact that other religions all have sort of similar themes, some some hero sacrificing themselves or or something that leads people to say, well, all religions are myths because all religions are similar in these ways. And he was saying, no, the fact that all religions are similar in these ways is evidence that there is a strand of truth in there and then where they depart from each other is where each one thinks that it's closer to the truth than the others. But there is a truth that they're all trying to, or that they all understand on some level. So, so to a Christian storyteller, every story echoes redemptive history to a greater or lesser extent, because the gospel is the first and greatest story. It's the story that defines what story even is. This is this is the presuppositional foundation for storytelling, and you know there are rival presuppositions. Um, at present, the most powerful rival to Christian mythopia would be Joseph Campbell's monomyth theory, which is often known as the hero's journey. Uh, most people who are interested in storytelling and media have heard of the hero's journey. Um, few of you may realize that Campbell was aggressively anti-Christian, a New Age philosopher who grounded his monomyth structure in Jungian psychology um so that for, for for him stories have power if they tap into and express the quasi-divine collective unconscious of the human race not a, it's it's got nothing to do with that whether they retell the gospel you know i believe i believe campbell was right to assert the existence of a foundational myth to undergird all other stories as we've been talking about um i also think that his his version of the monomyth is probably more man-centered and pantheistic um, than the Christian myth. But although he has a stranglehold on today's theories of storytelling, I really don't think Campbell is ever going to beat the Lord in a storytelling contest. There's there's <laughs> going to be some truth in his theory, um, which is probably why it's so 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 commonly used today. But um, but the gospel really is the true myth, right? You have this full redemption and judgment arc pretty much in every world of the wild story. And so it can't be stressed too much that the more consistently anti-Christian any given story is, the less it resembles a good story. Right. Put another way, the weakness in any given story lies in its departure from the gospel template. Um, I, I read a fantastic critique of Philip Pullman's um, fantasy trilogy, um, his Dark Materials. Which, explain, which, which went into some detail showing just how denatured the story had become by Pullman's uh, very epistemologically self-conscious, very internally consistent atheistic worldview. He had pursued his worldview to the point where his story s- began to stop functioning as a good story. Because <laughs> he stayed consistent <laughs> instead of bar- borrowing from a Christian foundation. Yes, but his story became denatured, right. became a bit more happened. like a <laughs> sermon, yeah. So that, And that's why Hollywood, and indeed anyone, has no option but to make Christian stories if it wants to make money or succeed as a storyteller. It just has to retell the gospel in order to survive. 
um, here's an example of what I mean. Um, a friend of mine watched Lost, um, all however many episodes there were of it. 60. And she, 60? Six seasons. Six seasons, all six seasons, yes. Um, and she was really disappointed by the ending. As she we said all it were. Completely she said she said the ending completely lacked a final judgment right um and she she says that lost ended without doing justice to any of its characters in practice it preached a universalist worldview in which everyone receives the same reward for their actions and like you said people hated it yeah it's it's widely known as the best five seasons on television Okay, <laughs> because the sixth season isn't worth watching. That's so sad. So you know, good stories have to conform to the rules of God's world and the structure of redemptive history. Um, I, I talked about the need for justice to be done in a story in our last episode. Um, so even if authors don't personally believe in ultimate divine justice, they know that humans still thirst for it, and justice sells movie tickets. Right. And I think most of them, I mean, you know, most of them do believe in it um, at a core level when it's them who is having justice withheld from them or someone that they love. Suddenly they discover they do believe in it in general. Absolutely. Yeah, the most, the, um, the place where I've heard most people talk about principles was in a law firm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, this person, this person only owes me, you know, $250, but it's the principle exactly. of the thing. <laughs> right. Let's talk about Game of Thrones. Perfect. Um, All the Christians <laughs> turn off their computers. <laughs> I oh well I'm I'm ter- terribly sorry to disappoint you. I have I have no shocking revelations here. I've never watched Game of Thrones. I've never read the books. Nor have I. And most of the time I, I definitely try not to complain about stories I haven't read or watched. So do take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. But um, I remember eight years ago, right before the TV series premiered, I got on the TV Tropes website and I spent a whole afternoon reading up on the story and the characters so far. And um, I remember a lot of the things that fans were saying about the series. Um, this this story was supposed to be like incredibly groundbreaking. Like this, it was this whole new way of telling a story. There's no clear protagonist, no clear good or bad guys, um, no tidy justice-based resolutions for the plot. Um, it wasn't just a totally new kind of fantasy. It was a totally new kind of story, right? And everyone was lapping it up with a spoon. Well, um, the book's author, um, Georgia R. Martin, he hasn't actually released any more books since I did all that research. Um, but even at the time, I remember thinking, okay, I can predict that this story is going to end in one of two ways. This man has really painted himself into a corner here. Either he's going to try to keep up this unpredictable, mold-breaking storytelling and deliver an ending that's going to be completely nonsensical, or it's going to turn out that actually there is a clear protagonist and there is a clear good and evil side, and everyone is going to be terribly disappointed when they find out that this story isn't, um, breaking the mold after all. Um, well, sure enough, by the eighth season of the television show, um, it's now adapting a plot outline provided by the author himself. Um, sure enough, what do we have? We have a clear protagonist and a fairly clear good and evil side. I mean, there are there are disappointed YouTube video essays about this. Because <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to see it succeed. Yeah. Um, I, I saw... A, 
I saw a tweet recently saying something along the lines of when did Game of Thrones become a story about a prophesied chosen king defending a wizard who has like the entirety of human history and knowledge in his mind. Right. <laughs> what, what happened to the um, anti-traditional um, basis of this whole story? Well, you know, again, basic story to structure works. You can innovate within story structure, but you can't simply abandon the basic pattern. Right. And, and nobody really yeah. wants you to because it leaves people feeling unmoored and unable to understand really what's going on or identify. People want to identify with the characters. And what, is, what does Ron Truby yeah. say about your protagonist? There always has to be a, a, a moral weakness in your character and an arc that you take your character along to resolve either, either resolve it the Walter White way and see how it dec- he declines or resolve it the more traditional improvement way but there has to be something there you can't just have a sort of relativistic anything is fine story that's interesting yeah and you and you need the cause you need that cause and effect link between a person's actions and what happens you need um you need that final judgment without any of those things like if, if if you make sure to adhere to those things people might say that your story isn't um original but it's it's at least it's a story that's going to satisfy its heroes. It's not going to end with some you know with something completely out of the out of the blue and unexpected and illogical right. and stupid. So anyway, you might wonder why if Hollywood has to rely on Christian storytelling in order to survive, why do the Christian films that get made? Why are they so uniformly terrible? And I think that by this time, the answer should be clear. The problem with these films is not that they are Christian. It's that they're not Christian enough. Certainly not deep down where it counts. Certainly not on the level of story structure and theme. Um, I took a moment uh, a while back to read an article about the God's Not Dead film series. And one thing struck me about what I was hearing. It was the fact that for each of the films, um, victory took the form of winning a debate, winning a legal battle, winning in the court of public opinion, something like that. In, In the world of those films... Dominion comes via reason and power, but in God's economy, dominion comes through loving obedience to God right. and loving service of our neighbor. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So too often our Christian so-called storytelling is little more than a thin veneer of Christian um, message that's actually flaking away from a set of deeply un-Christian presuppositions. Right. Too often it compromises justice or it preaches salvation through power. Or it preaches a, a prosperity gospel. Um and I think that exactly. um, I think that's why you end up with I I won't say movies but books like Harry Potter, which I know it still has some issues even as a story. But people freak out about Harry Potter and how anti-Christian it is and how it's a gateway drug to witchcraft. But I think it's a much more Christian story than God's Not Dead. It's a story about um, redemption or not redemption about. Um, selfless sacrifice and the the power of loving selfless sacrifice and of adults protecting children and sacrificing themselves. I mean, that, that is the powerful, um, you know, serving the weak. And it's a much more, it's a much more Christian story than a lot of the Christian things that we put out. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I I would, I would agree that I would also argue that 
films like Wonder Woman or Black Panther or them or Harry Potter do a much better job than most Christian films of communicating the gospel. Absolutely. Not because they make us not because they make us intend to preach Christianity, but because in their pursuit of simple storytelling excellence, they can't help swallowing the whole gospel into their screenplays. Now, it should be acknowledged that this often does come hand in hand with an attempt to suppress that very same truth right. in unrighteousness, as Romans 1 verse 18 points out. I mean, um, Black Panther does end with a light, brief, humanistic sermon on the basic unity of humanity. Um, as Christians, we do believe that humanity is divided into the obedient and the disobedient, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But it's, it is true that we're all made in the image of God and you can't suppress the truth in unrighteousness without having a truth which you're trying to suppress. Um, just as in Cornelius Van Til's image, the rebellious child must climb onto his father's face, uh, climb onto his father's lap in order to slap his face. Um, so even though Black Panther might attempt to deny the antithesis in its very last scene, the fact is that everything that happens beforehand in the film insists that there is an antithesis not between black and white, but between Christ-like servant leaders and satanic revolutionary usurpers. And without that central conflict, there could be no story. So if you remove that truth, you will denature the right. story. I do think, I do think um, we need to sound a note of caution that we should be slow to embrace everything Hollywood feeds us simply because there are some Christian themes. Like, you know, every no story, however bad, can help having... Um, the presence of a single unselfish act by a Christ figure doesn't sanctify an otherwise bad story. Of course. But I do believe that we should be equally slow to reject the cultural works of the ungodly just because we assume that they're pushing an anti-Christian agenda. Yeah. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's consistently triumphing over the attempts of the ungodly to suppress the truth. And that is wonderful news for filmgoers. Yes. Um, it's also, um, I know we're going to talk about excellence in storytelling in a minute, but it's also for Christians, great news. I mean, um, you know, we talked a little bit before we started recording about The Peace Child by Don Richardson, and uh, mm -hmm. I haven't read that in a long time. I read it when I was a kid, but it's always stood out to me because he tells this story. Don Richardson was a missionary um, to a remote tribe in, of basically, you know, cannibals and headhunters in uh in dutch new guinea mm -hmm. and he was struggling to find a way to communicate with them because their worldview was so violently opposed to his and they saw you know he would talk to them about scripture they saw judas as the hero in the story because to them the conqueror the betrayer they they actually valued um the ability to befriend someone and trick them really well the more complicated the trickery the better you know and uh and and eat them later but so they viewed judas as the hero and jesus as the chump and so it was very difficult to communicate scripture with them in a way that they understood and until he saw this um what he calls a redemptive analogy in their culture which was the peace child ceremony where they had these three tribes at war and they were trying to um broker some sort of peace that would last and that's hard in in a culture that really values trickery and so they had this ceremony where they would actually give one of their children to an, a, an enemy tribe which of course i don't know doing but um the idea was that you know someone who would give his child to his hated enemy give his son to his hated enemy could be trusted 
And as long as the child was alive, the two villages, you know, would live at peace with each other. And so he used this to communicate to them the truth of God who gave his own son for his enemies in a way that would resonate with them. And we, we should rejoice that there are so many, because the gospel underlies every really good story, there are so many ways that actually resonate with people in their own culture that we can use to communicate gospel truth without just saying no. I mean, obviously we should use scripture, but you know, if, if we're talking to someone and want to be able to communicate with them in a way they understand without going the full like humanistic route and, and leaving the gospel out, there's a billion avenues to do that. There are. I, if I um, if I'm recalling correctly, I read I didn't read Peace Child, but I did read and very much enjoyed Eternity in Their Hearts, which is a, a study of many different cultures around the world and all the different ways that their myths um, echo mm-hmm. the gospel myth. Um, but if I recall correctly, the thing that really struck these these tribes people when he um, when he told them that Jesus Christ was a peace child um, to humanity, they were just you know, that completely upended their perception of the right. of the gospel because all of a sudden, you know, anyone who attacked a peace child was the worst of the worst. And so when, when he said, you know, Jesus, Jesus was God's peace child to humanity, suddenly Judas was no longer the hero. He was the villain because they realized that, he, that what he had done was terribly wrong. Exactly. And so he was able to find one place where the truth of God was written on their hearts and reflected in their culture and use that to illuminate the rest of it. And it, it was beautiful. Yeah. I loved, I loved, um, I loved his book, Eternity in the Hearts. It's been a while since I read that as well. Yeah. I haven't read that one. I should go back and read both of them. Yeah. So we were going to talk about technical excellence because we've, we've been, we've been talking about, how simply pursuing technical excellence in fiction is going to result in gospel truth, even when it's not a Christian doing that. Um, And I think this is a really important um, aspect of Christian art that does often get overlooked or just discounted. Um, My dad was a teenager when he discovered the studio pottery movement, the art of making ceramics. And his pastor's wife asked him, so what are you going to do with your life? And my dad said, I, I'm going to make pottery. And she said, oh, yes, and how are you going to serve God through that? My dad replied, I'm going to do it really well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she, she didn't quite understand that. Um, and so I think, I think that if we understand that technical excellence is good in itself, that it's glorifying to God in itself, and that it's going to tell the gospel in itself, then I think that we're going to be less prone to the temptation to insert this big flashy message into an otherwise completely adequate and fine work of art. Um, A while back I heard from a dear friend who had a question about the art of fiction. She'd begun her first novel with, you know, the humble intention of just telling a good yarn, giving it, making it historically accurate to its time period and putting in believable characters and, now she was she was beginning to worry that it needed more more message more moral a bigger ambition to change the world and i told her no no the the point is not that you need to give your book a message the point is that your book will have a message whether you mean it to or not yeah this uh that same thing happened to me actually i mean as you know finding fairy tales took me over a decade to write 
mostly because I kept abandoning it and coming back to it at, at other points. And my own, um, you know, theology and worldview were undergoing dramatic shifts during that time. But at a certain point, several years ago, I started to feel guilty that it didn't have some sort of like death, burial, resurrection message in it. And I tried to shoehorn one in there and it was terrible. <laughs> and I knew it was terrible, but I felt guilty taking it out. And then at some point, uh, thank God, before I published it, I I realized how wrongheaded that was and that the story itself, I took out all the sort of like, um, you know, imposed on it salvation, whatever that was supposed to happen. And then my sister, Sarah, who's, you know, working on her PhD, she did a um, in-depth analysis, just a literary analysis of the story, like she would for one of her books in, in one of her classes. And when I got it back, she had pointed out to me all these themes in it that I didn't even know were there. It, they weren't intentional. I wasn't setting out to to talk yeah. about um, power religion sacrificing children to protect itself or about adults sacrificing themselves to protect children. Like I, I know that seems unlikely, but I actually wasn't. But those things were in it because that's who I am as an author, as a person, you know, and, and it's yeah. much more authentic um, and much more natural, I think, now than when I was trying to shoehorn some sort of message into it. Exactly, and it was good for you to um, to see those things in your book so that you could strengthen them. I, I definitely do think that if you're living deliberately to the glory of God, it's going it is going to bleed out into your work without you even noticing it. But on the other hand, if you you know if you are going to be deliberate about living to the glory of God, and if you're any good at all at an artist, you will pay attention to what it is that your artwork is communicating. And failure to do that is a mark of bad artistry. But part Absolutely. of the secret is to pay attention to what your artwork is already organically communicating as part of the entire overall shape of the story rather than thinking that you need to add layer something on top so you know art art comes from at you from unexpected angles it isn't it isn't couched in syllogisms and logical argumentation although you know that there probably better be some syllogisms behind it but the message the message primarily comes through the way that the story develops and the way that justice is or isn't done. But that said, um, you know, a book that has no higher aim than simply to tell a good story with believable characters in a specific historical time period or, you know, a well-created fantasy setting, um, this is already giving God glory to God. It's sending a very specific message. And that specific message is that technical excellence is good in itself and glorifying to God. I mean, so many Christians make art as if they believe that God doesn't care about quality. Or even doesn't like it. Exactly. And there's no excuse for it. I know a lot of people think that Christian movies are just low budget or something, but you referenced God's Not Dead. God's Not Dead had a huge budget. There are excellent movies that have been shot on iPhones because the person doing them was an artist who was trying to create good art. And then yes. you've got God's Not Dead with a massive budget that and and paper thin acting because that's they abandoned technical um, excellence on the altar of winning the debate, you know. Mm. Yeah, I think I think one thing that a lot of Christians miss when they're looking at um, when they're looking at writing 
writing fiction and thinking about what message they want to put into it is that all of reality is God's reality. And there is, there are things that God is just trying to say through the created world. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Um, And and that goes for anything basically in this world. Um, The Lord, if the Lord puts a certain character, time period, worldview or anything else into his story, then he means something by it. He designed it. The works of his hands are studied by all those who delight in him. God created like caterpillars and ancient Romans, World War I and Ian Fleming even by the word of his power. Everything in the world was planned by him in ages past. Um, We call this general revelation. And the fact that we need the guide of special revelation, the guide of the scriptures to interpret it shouldn't make us think that God isn't actually speaking through general revelation. The Lord speaks through pagan Greek myths, even though he might mean something a bit different to what the pagan Greeks thought they meant. Yeah. And, and, sorry, go ahead. So, no, you go. Oh, I just, I thought it was interesting that you brought up Psalm 119. I had written that down before I knew what you were going to say. And I was, I was saying the same thing that, um, that everything in the world declares the glory of God. And, you know, it says day unto day, utter speech and night after night reveals knowledge. And we think like, oh, that means the heavens are beautiful, but if God is capable of speaking about himself in the existence of the moon reflecting the sun and the stars and the fact that the sun rises daily like a strong man to run its race, obviously he can communicate truth about himself um, through everything, through all of the truths that we tell, even truths that are told through fiction. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, this is that's a major theme of my novel is, is fiction being a platform to demonstrate real truth, but, um, you know, he communicates truth about his character through the entire world, not just through a, um, what's the word I always use? An incantational gospel. You know? right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think one, one of the things that we, we tend to miss about God being, you know, the Lord of all creation is that um, sometimes we just have to faithfully depict a specific historical period or a specific um, community or a specific um, geographical location. All we have to do is faithfully depict that. And what the Lord is saying will come through in what we're writing, even if we're not, even if we don't quite understand it ourselves. This is something that I've definitely thought about as I've worked very hard on doing the historical research for my um, Watchers of Outremer series, which is set during the 200-year history of the Crusader states um, in, medi- in the medieval period. Um, you know, when I when I first started reading up on this, I was thinking. I need to figure out what the Lord was saying through this time period and what, what are the themes and what was, you know, what was he trying to teach us through this history? Um, and, you know, I, I've done a lot of thinking about it and a lot of work on work on it. But the first thing I had to do was actually find out what actually happened in the history instead of just reading, you know, one or two books and deciding that I knew it all. I wanted right. to do the really in-depth study and be faithful to the history first off, because I know that if so long as I'm faithful to the history, then I'm going to be faithful to what God was saying through the history, even when my own particular interpretations might threaten to get in the way of that. 
I think that's an important point. Um, you know, we talked before about how um, your attempt to be faithful, to faithfully depict that ended up changing your view of Muslims and, and mm. uh, giving you more empathy. And I think one of the major failings of Christian artwork is that we either, um, we're either afraid of opposing worldviews or we're terrified of like letting someone off the hook by depicting them too empathetically or something. And so mm. we, we try to write stories that are evangelistic in nature, but that it's impossible to resonate with the people that we're trying to save. Um, because we so don't self-defeating, right? It's completely self-defeating. We don't listen to their stories. We don't listen to their worldview where we don't want to. And so the, the stories we tell have nothing to do with things that they can identify with and, um, and are, and often just depict them sort of as, you know, our conquered victim in the debate <laughs> and aren't, it, and, and the story that you ended up writing was one that you almost got in trouble with for with some people, not most people, because I think it, your message comes through very clearly. But for being sympathetic to your Muslim character and and not treating her as the enemy, and uh, and I think that comes from faithfully depicting the reality of what was happening instead of um, your sort of presupposition that you want to impose on it. Yeah, and look, um, the you know, I w I've been so blown away by the kindness and graciousness of the Muslims who I've spoken to about um, about reading reading my work and helping me to do a better job of representing Muslims mm -hmm. correctly. Um, you know, they can tell that they can tell from that that my co my commitment is to the truth of what actually happened, rather than to my own particular um, X that I might have to grind, my own ideological preconceptions. And, you know, maybe they don't get that the reason why I'm interested in the truth is because that is a Christian presupposition that I have that the truth is important and that God is the one who speaks through it. But um, it's not better for us to um, depict our, I don't know, I don't want to say enemies, but our worldview opponents, um, untruthfully or as straw men of themselves any more than it exactly. is for them to depict Christians as all frothing at the mouth, hateful bigots. It's, it's the same thing. Exactly. Everything is sanctified. If we simply receive it humbly with gratitude, um, that's what, that's what Paul says in first Timothy four verses four to five. He says, for every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused. If it be received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So we don't, particularly need to shoehorn in a world-changing message or try to beat our audience over the head with um you know our worldview we can just start by listening and learning and being humbly thankful for what the lord is actually showing right. us in life and only then can we discover explore and learn more from the message that's already there the fact is that every everything communicates about god and so as fiction writers to some extent if we just faithfully communicate the truth about God's world, then we don't necessarily need message. Right. And we should not sacrifice um, technical skill on the altar of a message, certainly. And I mean, scripture makes it really clear that God is interested in um, exactly. 
people being skilled in what they do. And scripture talks about the, the people who were building the temple being filled with the Holy Spirit, skilled artisans. And um, Proverbs talks about it. I think it, sorry, I didn't mean to what steal that. Whatever you find to do, do it with all your might. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't think um, that God is honored when we um, don't apply the creative character that we have as his image bearers to our work with excellence. Absolutely. And I think he says, I think he says this overtly. Um, it's not just in Proverbs, you know, uh, do you see a man diligent in his work? He shall stand before Kings. He shall not stand before mean men. Um, we, we're going to stand before the King of Kings. Mm-hmm. Um, if we do good work, first Corinthians three verses 11 to 13 says, um, and I'll just pull this up. For no man can lay another foundation than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall test every man's work of what sort it is. So I really think this verse has a great application to Christian artists. We have a splendid foundation on which to build the Lord Christ. And we can't afford to build hay and stubble on that. We can't afford to take turn out hack work <laughs> lest we appear to hold our salvation cheap. Right. You know, the more, you know, you mentioned that there's um, in Exodus 31 verses 1 to 5, the Holy Spirit is the heavenly muse which inspires the work of um, Bezalel, the son of Uri, and every everyone who is wise in heart um, makes things for the synagogue. Right. Yeah, um, so so Bezalel's inspiration wasn't just for the concept and design work. It wasn't just for the fact that he was, you know, he was making cherubim and depicting angels. It was for the fact that he was, it was it was for his technical excellence. The, the scripture actually says, um, I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to devise cunning works, to work in gold, in silver and in brass and in cutting of stones, to set them and in carving of timber, to work in all manner of workmanship. So the Holy Spirit's influence on Bezalel actually helped him to, you know, cut gemstones properly. That's a very technical skill. Yes, yes, exactly. Talk about dominion. Yeah. So, so I think, I think Christians do need to need to take more. Um, notice of technical excellence and its place in scripture and its place in um, the life of the Christian artist. Um, I, we, you know, I think everybody agrees that a lot of Christian art these days doesn't show a very high, um, a very high grasp of technical excellence. And I think that probably the main thing about that is because um, Christian artists have a low view of technical excellence and what it, um, what it actually is and how the Holy Spirit inspires it, how it can in itself give glory to God without the need of anything particularly um, added to it. And so I think that once we start seeing technical excellence as something that is by nature belongs to the Lord, I think that it's only then that we're going to see that our artworks becoming um, higher in quality. I agree. 
Uh, well, I think that pretty much wraps things up. We're at about an hour, so we'll let you go. But I hope you've enjoyed this talk about um, the merits of fiction. It's obviously something that we're both very passionate about. Have a great day, and thanks for listening to The Monstrous Regiment. Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Regiment. We hope this podcast inspires and equips you to go and exercise dominion for Christ's kingdom. Terrible as an army with banners. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.